Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. Those of you who maybe are newer, I haven't met you. My name is Nate. I serve as one of our pastors here along with Pastor Scott, who you heard from earlier. And this morning, we are going to be wrapping up our apologetic series that we have been in for the last four weeks. Over these last weeks, we have had our interns... Justin, Josh, and Mike walk us through a series of apologetics tasks of how do we defend the faith, looking at different issues and asking, how does the truth about Jesus and his lordship speak into whatever the issue is? So I just want to thank these guys. These guys did a fantastic job. And church, these are not guys who are paid to prepare sermons. These are guys who have wives, kids, Our intern, Josh, he just got engaged and graduated. He's about to get married out of state. These are very busy guys. These guys spent hours upon hours in the evening doing research, preparing these sermons. So I'm really thankful for these guys, for their sacrifice. If you've not got a chance to thank each of them, please, I would encourage you to make that a priority. It's awesome that me and Scott get to labor alongside of men like this that love you all as a church family this much. So what we've seen, though, in each of these topics— We had three very different topics that the lordship of Jesus is dominant over all things. We looked at how can we know that there actually is proof, real proof for the resurrection? How can we know that God can still be good in the face of evil and suffering? How do we know that Jesus stands out amongst all other world religions? We've seen that over these last weeks, that Jesus truly is Lord. But so today... As we prepare to close this series, I want to just ask you one maybe obvious question. Maybe you haven't thought about it yet. What about all the other apologetics issues? What about all the issues that we haven't covered? What about the claim that science has disproved the Bible? I've got these up in the background for us. What about the claim that the Bible is full of contradictions? What about the claim that, well, anyone who truly follows religion ultimately just promotes violence? How about the claim that God could not be moral if he sends people to hell? How about the claim that the church, these are just like a quick smattering. I like just pulled these out. There are dozens and dozens of more topics. The church is responsible for injustice in the world. What about the whole host of sexuality issues coming against people who would claim that Jesus is Lord today? I'm not going to address all of these today. There are people who devote their lives to addressing all of these topics. So since we can't answer all of those today, I want us to just ask, how can we know that there is truth that is always valid and true, regardless of context, person, or experience? How can we know that even as we pursue knowing some of these other things, that our labor is not going to be fruitless. How can we know that if, say, you wanted to consider, is the Bible full of contradictions? How do you consider that but not have to go back to the drawing board every time and say, well, first off, how can you prove that God is real? And then the Bible is saying this. Like, how can we know for certain 
that there is absolute truth. That's what we're after today. How can we know that there is truth that is true regardless of anything else, regardless of context, person, or experience? This is what we call absolute truth. But is that possible? Is that realistic for me to make that claim that there is absolute truth out there that we can know for certain regardless? Does that kind of sound a little arrogant? Is it worthwhile? Here's what we're after today. So this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask Krista to come, and she's going to read two passages for us as we start, and then she's actually just going to open us in prayer as well. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. In 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we are thankful even for what has preceded this time. What we've heard already and been encouraged that your spirit is at work among us. That you have been kind and gracious in leading people in providing for people, in giving us uh, hope and comfort in the struggles of life. Father, we are just thankful that we can acknowledge today together that we need you. And so we ask even as Nate preaches for us that you would give him help by your spirit, empower him, give him clarity, give him words of wisdom to share. May us as the hearers be open Father, by your spirit, again, convict us, give us ears to hear, and help us to not be hearers only, but to be doers of your word. Help us to see the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ and all that he is for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Krista. So today we're going to explore the reality of absolute truth. And those two passages that we just heard read, 2 Corinthians 10 and then 1 Peter 3, if you want to open up there, we're going to be going back and forth between those two passages. For Paul, in Corinth, what's interesting is that he was trying to show the church there that Jesus was Lord over all things. Think about this. There were people in the city of Corinth who worshiped other gods, who worshiped the national ruler as God. There were people who said, well, we can't really know if God is real or not. Sounds pretty similar to our day and age. We have people who also claim there is no God. People who apparently seem to worship whoever the national ruler is. And people who claim to say in, you know, appearance of humility, well, we can't really know for certain. Think about it. Paul's situation is very similar. But what does Paul do here? How does Paul lay hold to the claim that there is absolute truth? Look in the passage. 
Well, notice what he doesn't do first. Let's say that. He doesn't build a series of proof. He doesn't try to create proposals and claims. Paul shows that the only way to know absolute truth is real is to know the lordship of Jesus. When he writes, we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. This is a claim to see that Jesus rules over all things, including the very ways we know him. And then look at the passage that Peter, where he writes. In my own words, my own translation of this, Peter is saying, hold up the lordship of Jesus as dominant in your heart, and in light of Jesus being Lord, you can make a defense. Because of the lordship of Jesus, we can then actually defend the faith. So do you see what both Paul and Peter are doing? They're not skipping around the issue. They're not tiptoeing. They are coming out like a boxer in round one, going for the knockout punch right out of the gate. If you think about it, normally, like, you know, I don't really watch UFC or boxing. I've seen Rocky, but normally it's, you know, go the distance. Normally it's, you know, try to outlast. Normally it's, you know, do a couple moves. No, no. They're like right away going for the knockout. The only way to know anything is to know that Jesus is Lord. The only way to resist and defend the faith is to see that the Lordship of Jesus, through the knowledge of God, is the dominant reality that makes sense of all other realities. This is what they're saying. So what we're going to do is I'm going to work through five points. The first point is a little bit longer. So hold on, because when I get to number two, we're going to move really, really fast. Okay? So Paul first off argues that the knowledge of God is the only way we can know anything. And when he's speaking about the knowledge of God, he's saying what is true about God, but what can we only know because of God? So, let's just ask, how do we know things? How can you know anything at all? How can you claim to know anything for certain? Well, if you want to understand something, what do you do? You maybe use logic. You maybe read about it. You use observation skills. You maybe use critical thinking to try to figure out how to learn. How do I learn things? How do I know things to be true? What about not just philosophical knowledge-based things? What about knowledge about right and wrong? How do I know what is just or unjust? How do we give an account for knowing anything at all? Think about this. You might think, well, I guess I just assume all of it. Exactly. We all just assume, well, yeah, this is right or this is wrong. Well, how do you know what's right and wrong? Well, I'm just going to, you know, read and communicate and try to logically understand things. Well, how do you know that you can trust your own logic and reason? Because trust me, there have been times, if you're honest, when your own logic and reason that you were fully convinced of was dead wrong. You see, for a Christian... If you base your understanding of the world on the knowledge of God, you have a foundation on which to understand things. You have a foundation that actually is what's called self-attesting. It gives an account for itself. Think about it this way. Because God is a rational being, we can have reason and logic. We just assume reason and logic, don't we? We just assume that whatever our reason and logic is, is right. Think about this. 
God is a communicating God. So we have communication. We have language. Since God himself is the author of communication in human language, God himself is self-aware. So we are self-aware beings and know that we're not just trapped in the matrix. And we don't even really know what's going on. And we also know, unlike Descartes, I think, therefore I am. No, I think and know because God thinks and knows. We can account for our knowledge of the structures in the world, physics, gravity. I'm not going to say anything more about that because I don't know much about that. But we know those things are real because God has built pattern and structure and order into the world. God himself is the foundation upon which we know anything at all. So we would say our theory of knowledge comes down to what God has revealed about himself. This is what Paul's talking about with the knowledge of God. But that claim that I just made about the knowledge of God, that is what every other worldview is opposing. Every other worldview is opposing the knowledge of God. So Paul writes that there is opposition, again, look in the passage, opposition against the knowledge of God. There are those who would seek to deny the reality of God and his absolute truth. But how will they deny God? By using the very means of knowledge that God himself has created. Does that make sense what I'm saying? If you are starting to get lost, let's talk about submarines for a second. Let's use a quick analogy here. Has anyone been interested in submarines lately? Over these last couple weeks, I have really gotten into submarines. For those of you who aren't sure why some of us are laughing, that's okay. Uh, About two weeks ago, a mini submarine uh, named the Titan was trying to lead a group of people down to see the Titanic wreckage. It was over two miles deep. They had tested this thing before, and all these people sadly were killed as the submarine imploded. They were all lost. Very sad story. So over the last two weeks, if you knew about the story and you were looking for the story, there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of theories. There's a lot of details about equipment and procedures and protocols and what should or could have happened. A lot of energy spent talking about this. I have spent a lot of energy reading about this. So, imagine you're the captain of a little submarine. I think there should be a picture of the submarine up there. You can see that there's, I mean, this is like basic parts of the submarine. There's 50 million more parts, I'm sure. So imagine that your submarine, though, represents your worldview. You get on your submarine that represents your worldview, and you're going to take that into life. So if you're the captain, though, that means you better know how all the parts work. You better know for certain all the parts are there. You better know for certain if I don't have all the parts, I got to either buy a part or maybe steal a part. So these parts of our submarine, of our worldview, Scott talked about this in his sermon in the introduction, these are what we call our presuppositions, things that we just assume are true. We just assume that reason and logic and language and morality are there and that we can count on them. These are the parts of our worldview. These are the things that you need 
If you are a fully engaged human life, you need these things to make sense of the world. But often, like the submarines, we just assume the parts are all there, right? But the question is, can your worldview, your submarine, actually work? Or are you just assuming it works because you've stolen parts from another worldview? Now, for the Christian, when you take your little submarine out on a voyage, because of the knowledge of God, you know you have the parts. You know the parts are intact for your submarine. You know the pieces required, a basis for morality, logic. How do we understand things? How do we observe things in the world? How do we, again, even thinking about the topics our interns covered, how do we know those things allow us to go forward? Well, the knowledge of God allows us to make sense of the world. But interestingly enough, how do other worldviews, other submarines out there, how do they make sense of the world? How do they give an account for all of their parts? How do they claim to say, I can logically prove Jesus is not real, when they're just assuming they have logic? How do you give an account for logic? People will often say, well, science has disproved the Bible. Oh, right, because science is an absolute that has never been wrong. Gotcha. Like, do you see how they are just assuming one thing to make sense of another? They are essentially stealing parts from one submarine and then trying to put it into their own submarine. You see, what you begin to realize is that all other worldviews are stealing from the worldview of Christianity and the knowledge of God. But the reality is, Every other worldview apart from the Lordship of Jesus is just as doomed as the Titan submarine. Any worldview that does not lead to submission to the Lordship of Jesus and the knowledge of God, not only can it not give an account for itself because it ends up being irrational, but it leads to separation from God for all of eternity. Because if you think about it, every other worldview is saying, I'm going to build an identity on myself. And the Lordship of Jesus says, no, Jesus actually defines my reality. So let's flesh this out and consider a practical example. Let's take the worldview, the submarine of the atheist. We're going to take out the atheist submarine for a ride. One of the most well-known and articulate atheists of our day is the late Christopher Hitchens, who was a fierce opponent of Christianity, very articulate, very well-spoken man, when I was in seminary, I actually had a chance to study a lot of his lectures and his writings and read a lot about him. Christopher Hitchens believes specifically that Christianity is immoral because our belief in God often leads to violence against other people. And he would say that there has been so much violence in the name of organized religion that ultimately religion is immoral. Shortly after 9-11 happened, Christopher Hitchens wrote an article in a popular periodical denouncing the Islamic radical terrorists who bombed the U.S. and who murdered thousands of people. He wrote that these were horrifically evil actions. Wait a minute, why does he think they were evil? Why does he think that it was immoral? You know who didn't think it was immoral? Those terrorists. You know who didn't think it was immoral? The thousands of, maybe millions of people in a lot of the Arab countries who were rejoicing that day. 
They didn't think it was immoral. Hitchens writes, though, that all men are born with an innate sense of morality. That doesn't seem to line up, though. You see what he's doing? He is presupposing the reality, the truth of morality, and that we all basically share the same morality. Again, interestingly enough, though, we agree with him. It was immoral. It was radically immoral. But why would we say it's immoral? Because God is a God of life who has made all humans as his image bearers and that he himself is the judge, not us. So we are not to take life. So we would agree it's immoral. We would very much disagree about the why. You see, it doesn't matter with anything if you think it's immoral. But why? And what gives you the basis to say that? You are operating off of a presupposition that you must give an account for. You can see already, without a basis for the knowledge of God, that worldview crumbles upon itself. But don't just take the atheists. What about people who think that science or data disproves God? What about people who say, love is love, and I can define love however I want? What about people who would say, well, I think God is immoral, so I choose not to believe in him? Have you any, have any of you heard any of these types of statements? These are very common statements in our day. There is a deep-seated ideology culturally happening right now. I've seen it in 10-year-olds. I've seen it in 50-year-olds. I've seen it in all types of people. This type of thinking that says, I can claim my own identity and reality however I want. This is what one author calls a radical, expressive individualism. That I can choose my own destiny however I want. I can claim a higher moral ground of superiority over anyone, regardless of what they think. Let's apply the test to them. How do you give a basis to define what love is? How do you give a basis to define what is right authority or wrong authority? What in your worldview gives you the ability to say that? Are you just assuming that you can make that claim? So, circling back to 2 Corinthians 10 with Paul, he's going straight for the kill. He's not messing around. He says that we destroy every worldview that opposes the knowledge of God because every other worldview falls apart without the knowledge of God. And here is where we can begin to shift and realize that it is this grounding of the knowledge of God upon which we actually not just defend Christianity, but oppose and attack other worldviews. So second point, it is the knowledge of God that demolishes every other worldview. What's incredible, friends, is that even if you just know the basis of the knowledge of God, that in the knowledge of God we can give an account for all things, you don't even have to know every other worldview. You don't have to understand every single religion and every system because you already know their whole system cannot give an account for itself. It is full of holes. And it is here that we actually can do the business of helping people see that their worldview ultimately is irrational. Look at those verses, 2 Corinthians 10. 
Look at the, the wording Paul is using. It is language of combat. Not defense. It is all offense language. Taking prisoners, siege warfare, armor, weapons. I was looking up these words in different commentaries, and all of the commentators were talking about the Greek wording. It's all about the language of offense. This is not defense. This is where we realize that the knowledge of God not only allows us to give an account for reality, but this is actually where we dismantle and bring down other worldviews. And this is where we realize, look at verse 3, that the warfare we engage is, is not the warfare of this world. This is where we realize that there are worldviews that aren't just logically and philosophically opposed to God, but we realize that there are satanic strongholds set up against the knowledge of God. Satan has set up fortresses of unbelief in the minds and hearts of any who would oppose the knowledge of God and the lordship of Jesus. Satan is hiding behind the atheist arguments. Satan is hiding behind the opposed agnostic, well, we can't really know. Satan is hiding there. He is using people as attempts at apparent, you know, intellectual humility. Oh, well, we can't really know these things for certain. Those are all fortresses keeping people from the lordship of Jesus. So, how do we dismantle strongholds? Well, as we already saw in the atheist example, we dismantle strongholds by showing people that their worldview cannot give an account for itself. We dismantle strongholds by exposing the worldview for what it really is. If you think about it, every worldview has to be self-sufficient. It has to be able to give an account. It has to be tested on its own terms or else the whole thing becomes absurdity. We dismantle strongholds by showing that the very means people think they are debunking God is only possible because they are using the tools that God himself has given them in his revelation of himself. We dismantle strongholds because we know every other worldview opposing the lordship of Jesus is an illusion. One of my favorite writers on this topic, another man I was able to read a lot about of and study in seminary is a man named Dr. Cornelius Van Til. If you want a name for a future son, go for it. It's a great guy. Listen to this quote from Dr. Van Til. The ultimate source of truth in any field rests in him, meaning Jesus. By the way, I'm just going to say this quote has shaped me for like the last six years. So if you want to take a picture or if you want me to send you this quote, I will gladly do that. And you should also read everything that he's written. The world may discover much truth without owning Christ as truth. We've already looked at that. Christ upholds even those who ignore, deny, and oppose him. A little child may slap his father in the face, but it can only do so because the father holds it on his knee. So modern science, modern philosophy, modern theology may discover much truth. Nevertheless, if the universe were not created and redeemed by Christ, no man could give an intelligible account of anything. It follows that in order to perform their task aright, the scientist, the philosopher, as well as the theologian, need Christ. And friends, this is where we make our stand for absolute truth by showing the impossibility to the possible. 
We destroy strongholds by showing the impossibility of the contrary. We land on absolute truth because we realize it is impossible for this not to be true. Either the reality of Christianity is true or nothing is true. This is not arguing, friends, for possibility. This is arguing for certainty. If the Christian worldview is true, it must be true in its entirety. You cannot pick and choose. And this is why we can know that there is absolute truth. And this is exactly what we see Paul doing, not just in 2 Corinthians 10, but throughout all of his writings to the church in Corinth. He's going straight for the chokehold. And again, this is where what's crazy is the power of the Christian worldview is not in its sophistication. It's in its coherence. The power of the Christian worldview is not its sophistication, but its coherence. No other worldview is coherent because it's either borrowing or it is illogical. And thus, friends, it is out of this place of confidence that we can defend the reality of the lordship of Jesus. Not because we're clawing for data and trying to make sense of things, but we recognize that the Christian faith as revealed in the resurrection of Jesus, in the sufficiency of the scriptures, in nature all around us, that we have a grounding and a framework to make sense of reality. But what's the end of that? For what purpose? The work of engaging and destroying strongholds is not designed to trick. It's not designed to manipulate. It's not to debunk every other worldview just for the sake of it. The goal is leading people to see the knowledge of God takes them to the Lordship of Jesus. That is the goal of all of this. The work of destroying strongholds is intended to show people how the knowledge of God leads to submission to the Lordship of Jesus. The goal is surrender to King Jesus. The goal is not winning arguments. If we go back to the passage, look at 2 Corinthians 10.5. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. That's a lordship claim, friends. The lordship of Jesus over all things. The goal of this for Paul and for us is drawing people to see that the very God they think they are rejecting is the very God who opened up his life and body to draw them into himself. So where does this lead us? Where does our belief in absolute truth and the lordship of Jesus lead us? Last point, number five. What's interesting to me is people say a claim of absolute truth is dangerous. A claim of absolute truth is radical. A claim of absolute truth is divisive. So where does a belief in absolute truth lead? Well, if you look at historical orthodox christianity you see that the lordship of jesus leads to a radical love and a radical acceptance of the other a radical love a radical acceptance of those who would disagree those who would oppose you both in its inception but also in its history christianity offers the world the best basis to love and respect other people regardless of their beliefs Christianity, with its radical claims of the absolute truth of the lordship of Jesus, offers a basis to assume good in people, 
even people who don't follow God, we still know that people actually can have inherent good in them and people will do good things because they are made in the image of God. In Christianity, in our belief in the absolute lordship of Jesus, we know that we are sinful and that we are often prone to weakness. So what grounding do we have to be arrogant or preeminent above other people? In Christianity and in the absolute lordship of Jesus, this doesn't lead to domineering over others because at its core, Christianity is centered on the gracious movement of God towards his people when we, like idiots, were running as fast as we could away from him. At the very heart of the lordship of Jesus is a man who died for his enemies while praying for them. What do we have to be arrogant about? As we consider this, this absolute truth found in the lordship of Jesus leads to a radically different way of dealing with people who would disagree, people who would oppose, people who would even be hostile towards us. This means, church, that Redemption Church, us here right now, we can be the most gracious, empathetic, yet the most bold people the world has ever seen. The absolute truth of the Lordship of Jesus creates a people who are defined as Jesus' courageous, listening, missional presence in the world. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.